All right, so we are in Acts chapter 7. Let me get my notes up here. It's been a couple weeks since we were in Acts. Um, Acts chapter 6 was where we uh, saw the, the problems of a growing community. Previously, before uh, chapter 6, there was Ananias and Sapphira who had a problem that arose from within the community. And in Acts 6, we saw another problem that was uh, uh, another internal issue, though not as severe, but still worth including in Scripture. And it was all about how people don't get along, right? This was about the widow not being fed, uh, certain differences. People were just ignoring that part of the community, and, and that just had to be stopped. We see the, the tyranny of the urgent and its administrative solutions, um, all the immediate needs that pull us away from spiritual work. The apostles said, you know what? Okay, here's a problem. Let's, let's designate some deacons to take care of it, and they... Uh, they found a few men. Stephen was one of them. We also see the, the part of the synagogue of the freedmen, which is where Stephen was attending. This was a uh, Hellenistic synagogue where uh, Saul was also uh, in attendance. He's, a Tar- he's from Tarsus. This is also known as the synagogue of the Tarsians, as well as the synagogue of the freedmen. Uh, so this was his synagogue, which tells us something too about the community at that time that they they weren't around they weren't going around starting new messianic synagogues. They were still a part of the synagogues and, and the communities that they had always been a part of. They just had a new um, understanding of the identity of the Messiah, right? Uh, and then also just the, the importance of not bearing false witness, and that false bearing false witness is almost always meant to stir prejudice in people, whether in an individual or in in groups of people. Um, we, we bear false witness to validate our own senses, our own feelings, what we think. We want people to, we want to, we want to uh, draw up prejudice against a person. Um, does that make sense? Would we agree with that? Yeah, so that's, that's what we touched on last week. Um, the, the new terminology, so each week I try to do a new term, but this one I'm going to revisit one we already shared uh, at the beginning of our study in Acts, which is the Greek word martyres, which simply means witnesses. But it's where we get what word? Martyr, right? So martyres in chapter 1, verse 8, uh, this, this uh, occurs 34 times in the Greek scriptures, 13 times in Acts, and that's the highest concentration of this word martyres or witnesses. One time in, in Luke, uh, five times in Revelation, uh, which is the second highest concentration in Revelation. So Acts and Revelation have the two highest instances of this word for witnesses. It did not, okay, so, so it means someone who can declare with confidence what he himself has seen or heard or knows by another means. That's what the word means. Someone who can declare with confidence what he himself has seen or heard or knows by another means. That's not what we think of when we think of the word martyr, is it? No. Um, it didn't mean someone persecuted or murdered for their convictions. Where we get the word martyr in its current understanding is, uh, um, is the fact that in those days, if you were a witness for Yeshua, the likelihood that you would die because of it was greater than not, right? So witness doesn't mean, being a witness doesn't mean you're going to die because of it. There's just a greater chance you would. Um, There are two passages in the Greek scriptures that also inform our understanding of martyr being someone who died for their beliefs. The first is going to be later in Acts, in Acts 22, verse 20 where it says, when the blood of your witnesses was being shed. So there's an association being made between death, the blood of martyrs, witnesses. So there's that connection. And then in Revelation 17.6, the blood of the witnesses of Yeshua. So death being slain 
for being witnesses of Yeshua. So there's these connections being made. And so over the centuries, this connection between Marturus, martyr, being someone who dies. So if we think of in our, in our culture, he, he's, he's, you know, martyred him. He's being a martyr, you know, someone who is, it can even be a derogatory term, someone who's like being a martyr for whatever. They're just, they're being so um, outspoken about something, almost to the point of annoy, annoying or obnoxious. That's not what being a martyr is. Being a martyr is not obnoxious. It is not annoying. It is simply someone who can declare with confidence what he himself has seen or heard or knows by another means. That's being a witness. Okay. The Hebrew word, uh, the root word for the, for the Hebrew word we see that's, that's connected to Marturus and the Septuagint is the word ud, ayin, vav, dalet, which means to return or repeat or to do again. And the picture I gave last time was of a crowd, a large crowd of people, pre-electricity and PA systems who, where you would need to have repeaters placed away from the speaker in, at intervals. The speaker would speak, and the first repeater, the first ud, would turn and repeat what he said to the people behind him, and then on and on it goes. That is the idea of a witness. That is the idea of repeating what you have heard, what you have learned, to more and more people. Right? That's a good, that's a good metaphor, I think, for what it is we are to be as witnesses and what it is they were as witnesses in the first century. Does all that make sense? Any questions about that? No? Okay. All right, so open your Bibles to Acts 7. I'm not going to read through all of it. Um, sometimes I do that, sometimes I don't. Usually if it's a short chapter, I'll read through it before we get into it. But this one is, is long enough, I think, that... Uh, and I have enough to teach from that I don't need to fill the time by reading through the entire chapter. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to... I'm going to give you an overview of the chapter, an overview of Stephen's speech, and then we'll talk a little bit about the false accusations... And then a few more points uh, that I have for, as food for you. So the overview of the chapter, I'm going to call these the, the beats, the rhythm of the chapter. If you think of this whole scene like the scene in a movie, a beat cinematically, you can tell when the beat is occurring, when there's a hard cut, visual cut. And if there's not a whole lot of activity going on in the scene, the camera will linger on a landscape or on a, a, a couple as they discuss something or as, uh, let's say, as an army is moving across the meadow about to go to war. There's one thing happening. It's not terribly interesting. And so that is the beat, just that. Once something changes, then there'll be a hard break to something else. This chapter is interesting in that there are, I believe, six beats, six distinct things that are happening. But in your Bibles, you may only have, my Bible has two headings. One is Stephen's defense, and then the other is Stephen put to death. Like, that's, that's all the organization of the chapter that those editors chose to use, is speech, death. One, two, that's it. I, I think that's wrong. There, there are six distinct things happening here. One of them just happens to take a little longer. So the first beat is just the first verse. That is when the high priests ask the question, are these things so? Those things are the four accusations leveled against Stephen by the false witnesses, which are that, where are they here? That he is speaking against God, he's speaking against the Torah, that Yeshua will destroy the temple, and that Yeshua will change the customs handed down from Moses. So the first verse, the first beat of this scene is the high priest saying, are these things so? Which is a yes or no question. Is it not? The next beat is Stephen's defense, which takes up 51 verses. But you can imagine in your mind, if you're a visual thinker like I am, how, this, how the camera work is, is happening here in this scene. So there's the high priest, then a hard cut to Stephen. 
And then this, the camera is on him for a while as he is painting this picture. Maybe the camera pans around him, but it's not a hard cut. It is just taking all of this in. Maybe during this scene, we're getting flashbacks because he's describing things that are happening in Israel's history. We get a flashback of, of uh, the patriarchs, of Joseph, of Moses, of Israel's rebellion, and, uh, and so forth. So within that cut, we get, some, we get some, some glimpses back, right? But what's happening is Stephen speaking. He's defending himself. The next cut is verse 54. And that is when the Sanhedrins are cut to the heart and gnash their teeth. Just one verse. The fourth beat is verses 55 and 56, where Stephen has a vision and makes a proclamation. So these are so the, the, the activity has ramped up, right? There's this long speech, and then boom. The Sanhedrin is cut to the heart, gnash their teeth. Boom, Stephen has a vision and a proclamation. And then, boom, the Sanhedrin rushes at Stephen and stones him, 57 and 59. And then, boom, Stephen's plea to God and death. So it's like these hard cuts, do, 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 right? After this long speech. That is how this, that's how I organize this chapter. So again, going through that again, verse 1 is the first beat. The high priest's question, verses 2 to 53, are Stephen's defense. Verse 54 is the Sanhedrin's uh, response to that defense. Verses 55 and 56 are Stephen's vision and proclamation. Verses 57 and 59 are the Sanhedrin's, uh, you could call it their uh, active response. It, it wasn't just emotional. This was, they were rushing and sentencing him to death. Then the last verse, verse 60, is Stephen's plea to God and death. Does that make sense? So it isn't just Stephen's defense and then Stephen's stoning. That's, that's too simplistic. I think we, sh- we can get down into the granular here with that. Okay, so what, were, what are your first thoughts about hearing Stephen's defense to that question? It's a yes or no question. What were your thoughts about this long discourse that he goes into? He doesn't just say, yes, they're true, or no, they're not, or, or even as Yeshua would have said, uh, you, as you say, it is so, or, or whatever, right? He just he goes into this long thing. What, what were your initial thoughts when reading that, if you, if you want to share? Sharon? You see this before. We've seen it before. Jewish way. Uh-huh. We remember. Uh-huh. We recite our history. Uh-huh. We put things into context. We do it at Passover. Mm-hmm. A few uh, chapters ago, when that third year tithe is brought in, the individual literally repeats to the mm. high priest their history, who we mm. are, and how we came to be here. Mm-hmm. So I, to me, that's a cyclical... So this is a... This is a traditional response to, we start with who we are and how we got here. Okay. All right. Any other, any other thoughts as you were reading through this? My thought was, why is he, this is not how I would have done it. (laughs) Why, why is he, why is he meandering around and doing these things? You know, which is the kind of question that, begs another question, which is, okay, if he's doing this and he's as brilliant as we think he is or know he is, he must be doing this for a reason. What is the reason? And let's dig in and find out why. But my, my initial response was, this is, this is strange. Anyone else feel that, that way too, a little? I know, Grant, in your, in your teaching on Acts many years ago, you had a similar response, like, this is, this is odd. Like, so... Okay, so in in the so that's the second beat, Stephen's defense. The third beat, the Sanhedrin cut to to the heart and and filled with and they have, they have a hatred, right? What's to note here is that Stephen had exonerated himself with his defense. He did a very good job of addressing the accusations. 
and exonerating himself. They knew at that moment that they did not have a case to condemn him, so they were filled with hatred. It doesn't say they then decide they didn't declare him guilty. They were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And because of that, they were bitter. Acts 5.33. This is calling back Peter's time before the Sanhedrin. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles uh, out for a little, a little while. So back then, they had the same reaction. They were cut to the heart and filled with bitterness and just wanted to slay them. So uh, this is, there's something to note here historically or contextually. And I have this down in my note a little later, but I'm going to share it now. Sometime during Yeshua's life, Rome had stripped the Sanhedrin of its authority to implement the death penalty. Okay? So during Yeshua's life, that was taken away. This is after Yeshua's time on earth so we, we presume that that was still from on high, that the Sanhedrin could not just go ahead and execute anyone. Um, and that's why Yeshua's execution had to be approved by the local pure, pure procurator, Pilate. Right? So it had to go through the proper channels, and then it came about. Right? So in this instance, we see with, with uh, the, the episode in, in chapter 5, of the apostles before the Sanhedrin, and here in seven with Stephen before the Sanhedrin, one of two things would have been true. One is that it actually took a lot longer to get Stephen stoned going through the proper channels, right? It wasn't just a boom, boom, boom. They rushed him and stoned him because that would have been a real problem for Israel. Or there was a power vacuum present during this time that the Sanhedrin were taking advantage of. It's possible. We know that was the case in 62 AD when James was put to death. There was a power vacuum. There was no pure procurator. That's a hard word to say. There was no one like Pilate in place to implement this law. Back then, they didn't have quick communication systems, Things took a while to fix or to resolve. So uh, the, at that time, I forget who the procurator was at the time, had passed away. No one knew it for a little while, maybe a week or two. And then word had to be sent to Rome, which took a while to get there. And then they had to make a decision, which took a while. And then they had to send the decision back, which took a while. So there, is a, there are times in, in this, at this point in history where a vacuum, a, a hole was 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 presented, and the Sanhedrin may have been able to take advantage of that. That may have been what was going on here. So one of those two things, either it took longer or this was the case. In either case, Luke, in his describing this, is, is truncating this to, to, to a shorter narrative because those things don't really necessarily matter, right? Okay, so something to note there of, of interest. The next beat, Stephen's vision and proclamation in verses 55 and 56. And let me just read that here. Let's see. Um, But being full of the Holy Spirit, is that right? Yeah. But being full of the Holy Spirit, I lost it again. He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing in the right hand of God. Okay. Now, because they, the Sanhedrin could not condemn him for the original accusations, because he did a very good job, and we'll get into this in here in a minute and go through his defense. He did a good job of exonerating himself. Now, 
the Sanhedrin had what they wanted. And what was that? If we look back to Mark 14, Mark 14, verses 61 to 64, again the high priest asked him, this is asked Yeshua, are you the Messiah, the Son of the blessed? And Yeshua said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So, the original accusations brought by false witnesses was, uh, you could say it was a ruse just to get him before the Sanhedrin because they were false. They were false accusations leveled by false witnesses. And after he exonerated themselves, they had nothing else that they could do as leaders. But as soon as Stephen shared the proclamation that he saw of the vision, there, they had what they needed. They had blasphemy, and they condemned him to death. The trial was over. Done. We're done. Covering their ears was a way in which they were to keep themselves from hearing more blasphemy. This is, a, this is just what, what you do when you don't want any, anything false or evil or blasphemous to enter into your heart or mind. You cover your ears. Because it would have been a very strange scene seeing these grown men just like, blah, you know, running down off of, their, off of their podium or whatever and rushing down. It's, it's a very strange scene. But they had what they wanted. They were already gnashing their teeth. They were filled with rage. And they had, they had their, their solution to the problem. Okay. We know that blasphemy results in death because of the passage in Leviticus, chapter 24. Leviticus 24, 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall he be put to death. So this this is all making sense now, how this could happen. That, That their response to his speech wasn't a ruling, it was just being convicted and being angry. Then the next beat is he gives them what they really wanted, which is what they believed to be blasphemy, which we, of course, know is not. But blasphemy was fairly subjective. It wasn't objectively only this, this, and this is blasphemy. It was subjective. Like a lot of things in Torah, there are things we wrestle with to define what what it means. And the definition of blasphemy here allowed, at that time, allowed for them to say, oh, that's blasphemy, and we can stone him. Yes, Sharon. There's two parts of his statement, and I'm wondering which one they felt was blasphemous. Hmm. Did they feel he was blaspheming? Um, Because of seeing God? Or was it the Son of Man at his right who, by the way, is standing. Right. I think it's the second part. I think it's the second part. Because at that time, they, they did not, they believed it was blasphemous to put anyone on the level of God. And to say that here I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God was to say here is some, here is some other that is equal to God. It's the otherness of this this end of this character that they cannot they have not reconciled but that for Stephen that must have been a stupendous moment in his life oh yeah for his messiah to stand <laughs> right. up yeah. to get out of oh. his throne to stand right. up and almost as if he's saying well oh, done you oh, yes Stephen. yes oh, i stand in honor of you exactly. yes yeah that is powerful uh Sharon was just saying how how powerful a moment that would have been for Stephen who was going through this, to see his Messiah stand looking at him as he's about to be, as he about, as he's about to be stoned. That would have been a power. That's how I would want to go. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. That's so powerful. So moving down. So, and then the, 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 sec, the, the fifth beat, Sanhedrin rushes at Stephen and stones him, all that I just said before. And that this either took longer than, it's, than Luke states it here, 
or they're taking advantage of a power vacuum and trying to stone him. Because we see they tried to stone, they tried to kill uh, Peter and, and, uh, and, and Andrew. So th- th- that we have to remember that they were not allowed to do this by Roman decree of their own accord. They had to go through proper channels. And then the last beat, verse 60, Stephen pleads to God to forgive them, which we've seen before, right? Yeshua, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, who is a witness, a servant, who sees all that is real and true in in reality and in the universe, and he can see that they don't understand what it is they're doing, and he pleads to God to be merciful to them. Wow. Wow. Can we do that? Can we do that? When, when people are attacking us or railing against us for whatever reason, but especially if people are against us because of our faith, because of who we serve. Can we be like Stephen here? I think we can. Okay, so I've, I've done an overview of the beats of the chapter. Let's do the same thing for the speech, for his speech. So verses 2 through 53. While affirming his Jewish identity by upholding God, the Torah, and the temple, and Moses, Stephen lays out Israel's inability to recognize God's deliverers. And this is a question I have for you in the home fellowships who are watching, and maybe you to do today when you go home. But I I would ask you to look in, in his speech for where you see him upholding his Jewish identity by affirming God, the Torah, the temple, and Moses. Because if he is someone who is against God, against the Torah, um, and is preaching of a Yeshua who will dis- just destroy the temple and take away the customs of Moses, then he shouldn't be saying a lot of the things he is and using the language he does to describe, to, to affirm all the things that he talks about. So that's your assignment, is to go and circle or, or, or take note of all the places in this speech where he is affirming, affirming his identity and up- upholding all of those four things. Okay, so he's, he's laying out Israel's inability to recognize God's deliverers through the Joseph narrative, Moses' narrative, the prophets, and then finally with Yeshua. Yeshua. With the patriarchal narratives, verses 2 through 8, the temple we see is rooted in patriarchal promises, and the promise of Messiah is implicit in the patriarchal promises. So here we see not only the temple but the promises and Messiah, right? He's establishing Messiah. Because that is then going to be the end of his speech. So he's going to draw it back to that. In verses 9 through 16, we see Joseph's narrative. Joseph was rejected and unrecognized. Then he was exalted. And the tombs of the fathers in Hebron and Shechem. And that's an interesting thing to dive into, too. I know Grant did it in his last teaching, but there's, there's something deeper there as well to go into we're not going to go to today. The fifth beat of his speech, verses 7 through 38. Oh, I'm sorry, it's the third beat. I'm sorry, I have this numbered differently. The, th- the third beat of his speech is verses 7 through 38. His high view of Moses. And Moses' attempt at redeeming Israel is unrecognized. Messiah is a prophet like Moses. So this is affirming Moses too. Telling something that they know that Messiah is a prophet like Moses. Moses' Torah equals the word of life. And and Israel historically rejects who? Moses. There's rejection here, unrecognition and rejection. The fourth beat, verses 39 through 43. 
Oh, I'm sorry. The, the, I'm sorry. I did these wrong. So the first beat is two through eight. If you're if you're taking note, two through eight, then nine through sixteen, then seventeen through thirty-eight, and now we're in uh, verses thirty-nine to forty-three. This is the fourth beat. The rejection of Moses, i.e., the Torah, led to idolatry, and the idolatry led to exile. The tabernacle and the temple. Jerusalem temple stands in continuity with the tabernacle that is tied to that rejection and that exile. And God is not contained in the temple. The fifth and last beat here of his speech, verses 51 to 53, they say he, they are now rejecting Messiah. They have not recognized him and they are rejecting him. And by doing so, the Jewish leadership has broken Torah. This is the accused becoming the accuser. He has completely turned it around. Completely. He has exonerated himself, and he has put them on trial. When I hear, when I hear this, I think of any time anytime we think we're... Uh, uh, you know we're in we're in trouble. We're really gonna. You know we, we, the, the enemy has the upper hand. There is always a way to turn it around. If we are living the way of life, if we are serving God, even going before the Sanhedrin because of false accusations and false witness, there. If we know we're we're standing in truth and living in God's way, and being led by the Spirit. There is no accusation against us. And we can turn it around. Or he will turn it around. That's the better statement. God will turn it around. God will vindicate. It is so encouraging because there are are going to be times in our lives, whether past, present, or future, where we will be accused as a community, as a faith as a, as a family, as an individual, we will be accused of things we did not do. But we must submit to authority, as Stephen did. He submitted to their authority, and he stood before them. He didn't resist. He stood before them, and he pled his case. And because of his brilliance, and that he was full of what? The Holy Spirit and wisdom. The words that came out of his mouth revealed God, re- revealed the hearts of those who accused him. We can do that through God's power. So in my email, I had made a, 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 a declaration, a proclamation in there about how Christian doctrine states that we should believe these accusations. How could this be? Now, I understand that's kind of an inflammatory statement to make in <laughs> an email to go out, but, but hear me out. I'm not throwing under the bus Christians, people who believe in Jesus. I am not doing that. The accusations in verse 6 that Stephen is defending himself against are like a laundry list of distinctions many believers make between Judaism and Christianity. Stephen speaks against God. He speaks against the Torah. I grew up in a fellowship, and many of you may have as well, that said the old law is what? Done away with. It is dead. that Yeshua will destroy and replace the temple, right? Anytime I hear, uh, not anytime, but sometimes when I hear people, a good-meaning Christians, talk about the temple or talk about the commandments of the old law, they always go to the temple sacrifices as being, oh, we can't do that. what, What kind of God would be so specific and detailed and that if he didn't get it right, you were just struck dead? 
That, to me, sounds like talking, speaking against the temple and what happens there, what the purpose of the temple is to bring sacrifice. And that you sh- in the fourth accusation that Yeshua will change the customs handed down from Moses. So am I, am I way off when I say that certain Christian interpretation or doctrine states that we probably should believe this? If they're being intellectually honest, and there are some, good, uh, some well-known Christian writers who have said explicitly, we should believe these things to be true. I have receipts. I'm not going to share them with you, but... There are those who say we should, we should accept these. As believers in Jesus, we should accept that these were true and that Stephen wasn't martyred because the accusations were false. He was martyred because they were true. Anyway, just want to drop that little bomb there and we'll move on. But that's, that's what I meant by that in that email. That, there, that, that here, especially in this chapter, where we see a servant of God, a disciple of Yeshua, being falsely accused. There's, there is some wrong thinking here in the leadership. Being falsely accused, he brings, he brings correction to them. I think that, that talking about this kind of thing, especially when discussing this chapter, is appropriate. I know that, that correction and, and talking about others is not food for you. It's not... Uh, it's not edifying, it's not uplifting, but there is some correction to wrong thinking that I think does need to take place from time to time, and this is one of those things. Whether or not you guys grew up in a congregation or a church that, that outright said that what Stephen was accused of was true is another matter entirely, and it probably didn't happen. But if we're going to be honest, this, this list of accusations sounds a lot like what uh, many mainline uh, preachers and, and authors would agree with. So anyway, that's my two cents. So we've got a few more minutes, and I just have some some thoughts to sh- to share with you, and then we'll and then we'll wrap up. Stephen was filled with the Spirit and with wisdom, and he was selected as a servant of the Messianic community. In some of our translations, it's, it basically says he was, he was asked to wait tables. It was more than that. He was asked to be more uh, of a servant in administrative ways so that the apostles could then be free to do the, the spiritual work of study, prayer, uh, really wrestling with, with things that weren't necessarily um, tangible physical acts for the community, though they did those as well. So Stephen was, by, by you know, our estimation, given some menial work to do. But he was filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. Like, if we, if we think of that, if there's someone like that in our community, what, what job do we want to give them? Anyone? What's that? Leadership. Leadership. An elder, right? Put them up high. But here, he is placed in a, in a service position. But because he was filled with the Spirit, he was empowered to do God's will in all its forms under the delegated authority of the apostles. And they didn't stop him. He was performing signs and wonders. He was thriving in his, serv- in his simple service to the community. Therefore, there is no menial work. There is no job in the Messianic community that is too small. It is all kingdom work. Coming in and unlocking the doors early this morning is kingdom work. Putting out the salt and pepper shakers is kingdom work. Praying over someone, laying hands on someone, yeah, that's kingdom work. But being here to support your brothers and sisters is kingdom work. Anything done under the delegated authority of God's appointed leaders is kingdom work. And because he excelled in the simple, 
menial tasks, he had the power to do what we might consider to be greater things. He saw God in the service of food to widows, and so God granted him a vision of the Son of Man standing in heaven the moment before he died. If we can, if we can think that big about all the things we do for the, in the service of others under the, authority, under the delegated authority of our leadership, then God will ask us to do greater things. He had a servant's heart. And if there's a secret weapon in the battle against the enemy, it is a man or woman or child with a servant's heart. Stephen was a champion. The Sanhedrin did not have servant hearts. They may have performed acts of service because that was part of their calling. And God put them there in authority to do those things. But you can serve without a servant's heart. And this brings us back to a lesson we've all heard, and I'll wrap up here and touch on this briefly because we've heard it before, and that is the difference between a soulish man and a spiritual man, right? Stephen knew the spirit behind the words of Scripture, which is why he could so brilliantly create his defense He knew what was underneath the words. He faced a council dominated by men who were not spiritual. They performed acts of service for the people, and God placed them there to do so, but they did not have the heart of service. Though though Gamaliel did, and there may have been others on the council who did, but at that moment in time, in in that scene, they would have been dominated and overpowered and overruled because this was building and building and building, and they were going to bring it about. They were going to kill this. It was mob mentality, a lynch mob, yes. These were soulish men who were consumed by the text, by the theology, the doctrine, the information, but who did not perceive the God that the text theology, doctrine, or text revealed. Grant gave a good metaphor for this in his his previous teaching on acts of a corpse. You can study a corpse. You can study its bones, its sinews, its tissue, its organs. But if it's already dead, you cannot know the soul that, that lived within it someone who's alive, as the Torah is alive, has a spirit inside it that the text and the theology, the information reveals. Stephen knew that spirit intimately. These men in leadership did not. Maybe they did at one point. Maybe they were good men, good spiritual men. But somewhere along the line, they got consumed by the text, by politics, by whatever. Something that that completely ignored the spirit and the soul that lived within this body. So let's not just get to know the corpse. And I don't, when I look out here, I don't see people who are just interested in getting to know the corpse. Believe me. The people here are people who want to know the spirit behind it. Because I'd, I um, I'd rather know the spirit behind it than be able to quote you book, chapter, and verse at the drop of a hat. I have always been bad at that, of memorizing scripture. But I, hope that I'm, but I hope that I'm better at understanding and knowing the spirit behind it. And I hope that's the same for you too. Um, so there's, there's one little thing I want to share. This, this goes back to talking about how um, Stephen was not speaking against any of these things and that the Messianic community was not against these things. And, and this is important to note after, after Messiah Yeshua had already ascended because if, 
If Yeshua had spoken against these things, then as soon as he was gone, they wouldn't have continued in them, right? So I want to share with you an excerpt from Daniel Lancaster's book, What About the Sacrifices?, which we have a few copies of here. It's a good little booklet uh, that talks about the sacrifices, what they are, why we should care, uh, but then also gives some context around um, the community at the time. So here, here we go. And this is just front and back here. It won't take long, and then we'll close in prayer. If the gospel did cancel the Torah and the Levitical worship system, the apostolic community in Jerusalem seems to have been ignorant about the change. They continued to revere the temple and participate in its services throughout the book of Acts of the Apostles. The disciples of Yeshua revered the temple because their master revered it. He regarded the temple as his father's house. As a boy, Yeshua was reluctant to leave the temple courts. As an adult, he could be found in the temple teaching and attending the festival services. He spent the last days of his life prior to his crucifixion in the temple. He prophesied its coming destruction only with sorrow and weeping. He drove the money changers from its courts, and he quoted the prophet Isaiah declaring, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. He was zealous for the temple. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. He promised to return to the temple when Jerusalem welcomes him with the words, blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. After the ascension, his disciples were continually in the temple blessing God. They were most likely in the temple when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them on the day of Pentecost or Shavuot. After that, they were day by day attending the temple together. The temple became the locus of the apostolic community. They attended the daily times of sacrifice in the temple and participated in the prayer services. They congregated and taught in Solomon's portico, the courtyard of the temple closest to the Mount of Olives, that they might be the first to greet Messiah when he returned. Every day, the believers were all together in Solomon's portico, and the people held them in high esteem. Even when the Sanhedrin ordered them not to speak in the temple, they persisted. An angel of the Lord instructed them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. They remained in the temple and every day in the temple. They continued to assemble in the name of Yeshua. As a result, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, which was a problem for the Sanhedrin. One might even consider the Jerusalem community of believers to be a temple sect, the temple sect. Not only did the believers congregate in the temple and participate in the prayer services at the times of sacrifice, they continued to bring sacrifices. Oh. Sorry about that. They should go, uh, this should go without saying. If they did not continue to participate in the sacrifices, as the theologically unclouded reader would assume, the Bible should have recorded that deviation from normative Jewish practice. It does not. Instead, it notes that they continued to participate in the normal sacrificial services. Nearly 30 years after the death and resurrection of the Messiah, Paul went up to worship in Jerusalem to keep the festival of Shavuot and to present offerings. He joined four other believers who, like himself, had undergone Nazarite vows. The five of them needed to offer a series of animal sacrifices to complete their vows. Paul agreed to pay for the expenses of the other Nazarites, meaning he personally financed the sacrifice of ten lambs and five rams. The narrative of the book is a lot of money, yeah. The book, the narrative of the book of Acts relates the story of these sacrifices matter-of-factly, as if believers offering sacrifices in the temple was nothing unusual. Instead, James and the elders of the apostolic community pointed to Paul's offering of sacrifices as evidence to other Jewish believers that he was still living in observance of the Torah, and therefore kosher, despite what he might be teaching Gentiles. Paul defended himself before Festus, saying that he only went up to to worship in Jerusalem, in a Jewish context, to worship in Jerusalem means to offer sacrifice and prayer at the temple, 
as prescribed by God in Torah. Paul went on to say, Now after several years, I, I, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, Acts 24.17. The Greek word translated as offerings, prosphora, means sacrifice. Paul declared that he went to Jerusalem to present sacrifices. So if there's any doubt about whether or not the Messianic community was for God, for the Torah, for the temple, for the customs of Moses, put that to rest. There is no doubt. That's what they were about. And Stephen defended himself very well here in this chapter. And I encourage you again to go and find the places, circle them, where, how it is he's affirming it, his identity, uh, by reciting their history. He's saying, I'm one of you, right? So, so do that uh, sometime today. And uh, I hope this has been, this is a great chapter, isn't it? Great chapter. Great chapter. Okay, so let's close in prayer, and then we'll go bless the kids, do the bracha, and eat. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, the acts of the apostles. Um, you know, I, I, pr- I thank you every week for this, but I thank you for the hands of the, the scribes who wrote these words down, who, who did it faithfully, um, did the best they could, so that we here in this day and age can read of the accounts of these great men and women of faith in the first century who were witnesses, who were actual physical witnesses, eyewitnesses of the things that, that gave them power to do signs and wonders and to uh, establish the momentum in these days, in, in those times, that has lasted for thousands of years. We thank you for them, and we, we ask that you bless them. And bless all those throughout history who have allowed these words to reach us here today in this building, in our homes, in the the quiet places of our lives, in our offices, where we can just pull them out and just read them. We thank you so much for that that gift. We thank you not only for the text and the information that that is in it, but your spirit that is there, that it reveals you, and that you you are accessible to us. You are there for us to get to know you, for us to be with you, to, to know your heart, and to come under your authority so that we can do kingdom work at any level and every level within our community in this world. Help us to be humble and courageous as Stephen was humble and then courageous. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.